The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning, happy Monday, and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national, regional, and local headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress, local elected officials, and other high-profile public figures. Today, I am exceptionally excited to bring you my interview with the remarkable and incomparable Baroness Carolyn Cox from the British House of Lords, someone that I admired for years. I've admired her activism, her humanity, all the humanitarian work that she's done through the years, throughout the world. Um, She's truly, truly one of the most exceptional officials, leaders, that we have. Um, She's truly a treasure, and I'm humbled and privileged to have this opportunity to um, speak with her, uh, and I hope you enjoy it. So stay tuned right after the news. Here are some headlines from the last couple of days and this morning. On Wednesday, the government said its consumer price index soared 6.2% from a year ago, the biggest 12-month jump since 1990. Both the White House and Federal Reserve have described this inflationary spike as a temporary byproduct of the pandemic, which has snarled supply chains and kept a lot of people out of work. While wages are climbing, especially in industries like restaurants, many businesses are passing those added labor costs onto customers in the form of higher prices. President Biden recently addressed the inflation and touted his infrastructure plan in Baltimore. We have an expression, we used to have an expression when I served in the Senate, Senator Van Hollen. When they want to make some statement that was personal, they say, a point of personal privilege. You know, when you're talking about being a waterman, working on the water, my uh, family's originally from Baltimore, came in the early 1800s. And uh, the entire Biden family worked in the water with watermen until uh, probably uh, 1906, 7 or 8. And my father uh, raised here in Baltimore. They don't say Baltimore, they say Baltimore. Uh, and, uh, and so, uh, you know, although they never worked at the port, uh, they did work in the bay and, and along here. So, uh, you know, this has been uh, this, this one of the oldest ports in the country continuously running and one of the best ports in the country. And so, Tony, thanks for that introduction. And uh, Mayor Scott, thanks for the passport into the city. Appreciate it very much. And I want to thank Governor Hogan for being here and members of the delegation. I want to start off with one of my best buddies and I think one of the most effective people in the United States Senate, Chris Van Hollen. Don't if you need something, go to him, man. He knows how to get it done. And also, uh, uh, that's uh, Rupersberger and uh, and the guy who I knew him when he was a kid. He doesn't remember me. I'm getting so old. Knew his dad, Senator Sarbanes, and Congressman Sarbanes, Congressman Brown, and uh, all all this delegation. You had a first-rate delegation, and uh, so I want to thank him for uh, for being here today, and uh, and thank him for all the help in getting the, uh, the members of the House and getting the, uh, the legislation passed. 
It's a big deal. It's going to make a big difference. The reason I started calling this Build Back Better is we're the only country in the world, and we underestimate ourselves. We're sort of down on ourselves the last 10 years or so. We're the only country in the world, as a matter of history, that every crisis we faced, we've come out better on the other side. We not only beat it, not a joke, think about it. We've come out better than we were before we went into the crisis. And the economic and political, as well as uh, health crisis we found with COVID, I was determined when we got elected, we got to build it back better than it was. Because the world's changing so rapidly, so rapidly, man. We got to keep up. We're in competition to determine whether or not we can still remain the most powerful economic force in the world. And today I'm here to talk about one of the most pressing economic concerns of the American people, and it's real. And that is getting prices down, number one. Number two, making sure our stores are fully stocked. And number three, getting a lot of people back to work while tracking and tackling these two above challenges I mentioned. Today's economic reports showing unemployment continued to fall, but consumer prices remain too high. Tell us, the American people, in the midst of this economic crisis, the recovery is showing strong results, but not to them. They're still looking out there. Everything from a gallon of gas to a loaf of bread costs more, and it's worrisome, even though wages are going up. We still face challenges. We have to tackle them. We have to tackle them head on. And on the good side, we're seeing the highest growth rate in decades, the fastest decrease in unemployment at this point ever since 1950. Jobs are up, wages are up, values are up, and savings are up. But we're, we got problems too. Many people remain unsettled about the economy, and we all know why. They see higher prices. They go to the store online, and they can't. Or they go to the store or go online, and they can't find what they always want, and when they want it. And we're tracking these issues and trying to figure out how to tackle them head on. My administration, with the help of the folks on my left over here, is uh, has a plan to finish the job of getting us back to normal from the pandemic and having a stronger economy than we ever had before. Let me explain the part that the ports play said why they're so critically important. It starts with a piece of good news. Infrastructure week has finally arrived. How many times you hear over the last five years, infrastructure week is coming? <laughs> yeah. Uh -huh. Anyway, but last week, we, uh, we took a, a monumental step forward as a nation. And we did something long overdue, long talked about in Washington, but almost never actually done. The House of Representatives passed my bipartisan infrastructure bill. Along with another plans that I'm advancing, this bill is going to reduce the cost of goods to consumers, businesses, and get people back to work, helping us build an economy from the bottom up and the middle out, that, where everybody's better off. You know, I, I'm tired of this trickle-down economy stuff. I come from Delaware, just across the line up here, and, uh, you know, we have more corporations in Delaware than every other nation in the state combined. And so I understand big business. The fact of the matter is, it's time they start paying their fair share. The fact is, you have 55 corporations last year that, in fact, made $40 billion, didn't pay a single penny in taxes. Nobody's going nobody's to pay more. If you make less than 400 grand, you're not going to pay anything more in taxes at all, period. Guaranteed, including gasoline tax. Not going to be additional from a federal government standpoint. And so, look, this is a once-in-a-generation investment. 
to create good-paying jobs. Modernize infrastructure, turn a climate crisis into an opportunity. When I talk climate to other world leaders, I say, think one thing. When are dealing with climate, think jobs, good jobs, because that's how you beat the climate crisis. Put us on a path to win the economic competition of the 21st century. We face with China and the rest of the world. China's outspending us on research and development. China is outspending all these, these other countries are as well. And here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to create good paying union jobs, union, not good not $12 an hour, not $15 an hour, 45 bucks an hour and up with good benefits. So you can raise the family on and build the middle class out. And jobs that cannot be outsourced. You can't outsource these jobs. I'm going to transform our transportation system with the most significant investment in passenger rail in the past 50 years. And roads and bridges, the most significant investment in 70 years. And investments in public transit that we've done over the period. And this is going to, it's going to modernize our ports with $17 billion in investment. $17 billion in investment. We're going to reduce congestion. We're going to address repair and maintenance backlogs deploy state-of-the-art technologies and make our ports cleaner and more efficient. And we do the same with our airports and freight rail. We're going to create jobs replacing lead water pipes that are here in Maryland as well as every other state in the Union that are poisoning our kids and others. We're going to make high-speed internet affordable and available to everywhere in America. Those of you who have kids in school when we've been going this hybrid thing, some in class, some out of class, how many times, if you have, if you don't live in an area where you have high-speed internet you can afford, you, how many times you've driven your kids to the parking lot of McDonald's and sat there going off the McDonald's internet so you could hear? No, I'm, I'm not joking. Think of this. United States of America, for God's sake. So, folks, we're going to build the first-ever national network of electric vehicle charging stations all across the country. IBW is going to put in 500,000 charging stations across the country. And guess what? That's in the Recovery Act. I'm assuming that, 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 that's in the Build Back Better bill, which is not going to raise taxes one single cent. It's totally paid for, totally paid for by making taxes work for people who make over 400 grand and just do their fair share. I'm a capitalist, man. You should be able to be a millionaire or billionaire if you can, but pay your fair share. Pay something along the line. I'm going to get America off the sidelines on manufacturing. Manufacturing of solar panels, wind turbines, batteries to store energy and power of electric vehicles, from school buses to automobiles. We're also going to make historic investments in environmental cleanup and remediation, rebuilding resilience against superstorms and droughts and wildfires and hurricanes. I travel all over the country this year. You know, there's nine, literally, $99 billion in losses because of storms this year. $99 billion. You ever think you'd hear somebody stand up and say the Colorado River is being drained? You ever think you'd see you go out more wildfires in the West than the entire and lost, land lost, homes lost, to burn to the ground. I've flown over in Marine One. Than the entire state of New Jersey, from the Cape all the way to New York. That's how much we've lost in America so far. So far, according to economic experts, this bill is going to ease inflationary pressures, lowering the cost of working families. 17, excuse me, yes, 17 Nobel laureates in economics, 
wrote a letter to me about 10 days ago saying this is going to affect bring inflation down, not up. But best of all, the vast majority of these jobs are going to create, that we're going to create don't require a college degree. Don't require. This is the ultimate blue-collar blueprint to rebuild America. I'm not waiting to sign a bill to start improving the flow of goods from ships to shelves. Yesterday, I announced the port of a port plan of action. It lays out concrete steps for my administration to take over the next three months to invest in our ports and to relieve bottlenecks. This builds on the progress we've already made. Last month, I reached a deal with two of the largest ports in America, the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach, and I met with you guys, with the uh, longshoremen there, and we worked out a deal between the port owners and the longshoremen to move toward operating those two ports. Okay, 40 percent of everything in the Pacific comes through those two ports. And they're lined up, ships are lined up, 70-some lined up out as far as you could see. So they all agreed. They're going to go 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It's already paying off. Last week, the number of, of, of container ships in the docks for more than nine days fell by over 20 percent. And now we're announcing steps to improve ports in the East Coast, to provide support for the Port of Savannah, the fourth largest container port in the country, to help reduce congestion. With our help, they now have the funds they need to set up five new inland port sites in Georgia and North Carolina so goods can get closer to their final destination more quickly. And other ports across the country will have the resources they need to make these kinds of immediate investments as well. The challenge we need to meet here, and my plan is going to help address, has to do with the supply chain. You hear a lot about the supply chains in the news, but frankly, not a lot of people are clear, have a clear understanding whether they have a PhD or they didn't go to school about how a supply chain works. It says easy to talk about it, but what's the impact on the economy, let alone how to fix it? It's perfectly understandable because supply chains are incredibly complex. As long as goods and materials are getting where they need to go on time, there's usually no need to worry about the supply chains. But when global disruptions hit, like a pandemic, they can hit supply chains particularly hard. COVID-19 has stretched global supply chains like never before, and suddenly, when you go to order a pair of sneakers or a bicycle or Christmas presents for the family, you're met with higher prices and long delays, and they say they just don't have any at all. The reason for that last year was has a lot to do with most companies make their product, how they make their products today. In simple terms, supply chain is just the journey that a product takes to get to your doorstep. Raw materials plus labor, assembly, shipping, everything it takes to create the finished product. These supply chains are complex. Even, even products as simple as a pencil can have to use the wood from Brazil. Donald Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon, has been charged with contempt of Congress after failing to appear before a committee investigating the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol. The Justice Department said Bannon had been indicted by federal grand jury on two counts refusing to appear for a deposition and refusing to provide documents in response to the committee's subpoena. Bannon pushed false conspiracy theories about the 2020 election and prophesied on his podcast on January 5th, I quote, all hell is going to break loose tomorrow. 
that evening, his, he was part of a gathering of Trump allies at the Willard Hotel in Washington that the House of Representatives Committee has called the War Room. Countries have agreed a deal on the climate crisis that its backers said would keep within reach the goal of limiting global heating to 1.5 Celsius, the key threshold of safety set out in the 2015 Paris Agreement. The negotiations carried out late into Saturday evening as governments squabbled over provisions on phasing out coal, cutting greenhouse gas emissions, and providing money to developing nations. The number of people quit their jobs rose to a record high in September, the Department of Labor said Friday. Some 4.4 million workers, or 3% of the total workforce, quit their jobs in September, the DOL said, marking the highest number since the government started tracking the data. Moreover, the number of job openings in September was 10.4 million, tying August for the second highest figure ever recorded and down only slightly from the record 10.9 million job openings in July. Let's get blunt. On today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about this sort of parallel universe that we seem to live in, and I'll explain what that means. I was reading a social media post. Uh, Someone wrote um, that uh, today's media, for the most part, seems to uh, want to convince the world that the opinion of the top 5% is actually the opinion of the, the 95%. And that made me think about how we, you know, when we, when we look at media, when we either we watch the news or read or social media or whatnot, however we get our sort of information, there are so many more headlines talking about uh, stock prices of such and such, whether it's uh, Tesla or Amazon or uh, whatnot going up and, uh, you know, billionaires are making um billions more every week, every month, whatnot. And the real estate market, which hasn't really slowed down even uh, despite the pandemic and so on and so forth. And then there's the reality, which, yes, sure, sometimes the, the media does report on that too, but not enough because uh, I recently was talking to a friend of mine and I realized that he was really... Uh, going through a really hard time financially. And I didn't know because I assumed because he's in the entertainment industry and because of the the specific profession that he was working a lot because, you know, he would be in demand. And that's that's not so. Uh, and there's so many others who are who are really suffering. And uh, this friend of mine, who is a very highly skilled professional in what he does, uh, had to go and start uh, working for um, one of these delivery companies. Um, in fact, I have another friend who started doing that a few months ago. And then there are people who are trying to rent uh, apartments in, in the greater L.A. area and are unable to because the prices are so high. I mean, one-bedroom apartments in L.A. proper sort of start around $2,100, dollars And who can afford that? A single person, what sort of income must you have to afford 
just rent starting at that point. It's, it's just it's just frustrating watching our some of our leaders all the way up to President Biden talk about and highlights these tiny little uh, changes or, or gains in the economy that don't really, uh, they don't trickle down. They don't, and I don't mean that, uh, you know, using double entendre of trickle down economics that the Republicans love to use, something we know doesn't work, but they don't really transfer to the working people, to the, the middle class, the working class, and the working class just keep working harder and harder. And, uh, you know, these, these new, this, this news of house prices and, and house sales and, um, you know, extraordinary gains in stock prices, it's, it's really not, um, it doesn't apply to the average American. But if you, if you read the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, LA Times, uh, it, you sort of get this impression that everyone else is in that group, but you're not. Uh, and the reality is very different. Um, so something we need to, uh, I'm, obviously I'm not the first one person talking about this. this, this has been going on forever, but we've got to like really put pressure on our system and our, and our leaders and our policymakers to, that if they're going to talk about the American dream, that they should actually take substantial steps to put the country on a path where that's actually possible. Um, because uh, there are so many hardworking people, uh, smart people that are just constantly living paycheck to paycheck. Uh, in fact, uh, we know that 50% of Americans are about three paychecks away from uh, being homeless, and that's just not right. Um, and that's that's if they not if they don't have any kind of a medical, uh, you know, issue or an emergency. So uh, we've got to get blunt about it, We've got to talk about it and uh, put it out there and repeatedly until someone hears and someone listens to us. So uh, there we have it. Uh, let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. Baroness Carolyn Cox is a crossbench life peer who has sat under this title in the British House of Lords since March 1983. Baroness Carolyn Cox became a life peer in 1983 for her contributions to education and has served as a deputy speaker of the House of Lords from 1985 to 2005. Lady Caroline is also the founder of an organization called Humanitarian Aid Relief Trust. Baroness Cox's humanitarian aid work has taken her on many missions to conflict zones, allowing her to obtain first-hand evidence of human rights violations and humanitarian needs. Areas traveled include Artsakh, also known as Nagorno-Karabakh, Sudan, Nigeria, Uganda, jungles of Burma, and the communities suffering conflict in Indonesia. Lady Cox. Good afternoon from here. Where are you? Good afternoon to you. I'm in Los Angeles. Good morning to you. Thank you. So good to see you in person. Well, it's good to see you as well. I just get myself a couple of cushions because I'm only half on screen. <laughs> get comfortable. How are you? Oh, never been fighting fit. 
Yeah. Awesome. Living a busy my life because, well, there's all the tragedies of Armenia and Artsakh, of course, but also we work in other countries and they've all exploded yeah. into terrible situations like Sudan has just gone up in war, Burma, Myanmar, uh, that is suffering from horrendous military oppression and killings, and uh, Nigeria. Yes. Thousands of people killed, and none of it gets covered on the media, but we have partners there, so we do visit and we do um, try and take aid and advocacy. Yeah, I was reading up on your latest developments and your, your schedule, and I thought, wow, it, it, I, can't, I just can't imagine almost all the work that you do throughout the world. Um, of course, you know, I'm most familiar with your work in Artsakh. You are, you know, I just got back from Armenia. I was shooting there, finishing up my uh, documentary, and just people just love you so much. You're really an icon. There's no one like you in, in all of the world that has done so much for Artsakh, the Armenian people, for human rights and justice. It's just really incredible. I'm so honored. You know, I've interviewed some of the most high profile members of Congress, and some of them are members of the Armenian Congressional Caucus. And they've done great work and they fight the good fight, but no one has done what you've done on the ground, in person, face to face. Uh, I'm truly, truly honored. Well, I just want to say thank you to the Armenian people for holding a front line of freedom for the rest of the world. You paid as a high sacrifice for it and you still do and still are. And I thought that, was it Sizzle you called it? That little short section of film you showed was brilliant. Oh, thank Absolutely you. Superb. I mean, really did get some of the agony and the anguish. But um, I look forward to seeing the whole thing because it's so powerful. Thank and you. And it breaks my heart. Um, well, thank you for putting truth on the record. I just wish we could get the international community to bring forth the necessary responses from Azerbaijan or impose sanctions on the Indeed. other. It's very challenging. We're going up against uh, oil money. Yep. And a friend of Azerbaijan, uh, Turkey, which is in NATO, it's a very, yeah. a very challenging thing to go against. It is. So I wanted to ask you, as a non-Armenian who's been going to Artsakh, what's your perspective on Artsakh, the people, the land? Well, I have an enormous respect and affection for the people of Artsakh. Uh, as you know, the land is historically Armenian, some of the oldest Armenian churches and uh, various sort of um, well, evidence that Armenians have been there for centuries and centuries. And when Stalin took his policy of creating oblasts and relocating people in uh, regions in not very friendly context, of course, um, Artsakh was cut off from Armenia and put inside Azerbaijan. And then since then, they've had a difficult time. They had the um, very intense war in the early 1990s. I was there many times during that war and uh, tremendous suffering uh, with the characteristic Armenian resilience and courage. Uh, the people pulled themselves out of that dreadful situation and rebuilt Artsakh uh, very well. And um, also um, generated and maintained the fundamental principles of democracy, human rights, uh, and so on. So it was doing as well as could be expected under the circumstances. And then, of course, this 44-day war broke out, 
and uh, the suffering is continues to be and will be for time to come certainly very very great so my appreciation as i said at the beginning uh, to your people that you held a front line of faith and freedom for the rest of the world paid a high price for it still paying a high price for it and you're not getting the support you should get from many members of the international community this is the blunt post with vic on kpfk 90.7 fm i'm your host vic jarami and you're listening to my interview with baroness carolyn cox we all have different sort of ideas and such but what do you think happened what got Azerbaijan and Turkey to think that they can orchestrate something like this in 2020 and, you know, in 44 days, just really bulldoze through this land and kill so many people uh, from from sort of like the international perspective of how this could have happened. Well, I think they reckon they could get away with it with impunity. And also they had the military resources to ensure military success. So I think, unfortunately, both of those proved true. Um, they have got away with impunity, with horrendous war crimes and crimes against humanity, which they did in the war in the 1990s as well, um, with impunity. So I think they could fairly well uh, count on impunity. And then, of course, their massive military resources helped by Turkey and with the massive use of drones. And I understand Turkey um, recruited uh, several thousand, I think, about, we said 4,000 or so Syrian jihadists to come and fight alongside the Azeris. So they were very well resourced in personnel and in weaponry. And the drones were a very different factor from the war in the 1990s. And they, I think, did a lot to destroy the Armenian position. Yeah, that was a very good... Uh, explanation of of what happened and how this was possible. Um, how about the agencies such as European Union, United Nations, OSCE, Council of Europe, European Parliament? Uh, what do you think about their uh, what I call the deafening silence during this? Well, I think I'd echo, echo your words. Um, there have been blatant war crimes and crimes against humanity. And nobody so far has taken Azerbaijan to account. The British government, um, I raised this issue with colleagues many times in the British Parliament, and all they say is, well, we're talking to the President of Azerbaijan, we're talking to the President of Armenia, and it finishes with the talk. And uh, they've done nothing action-oriented to bring about any change, and particularly what's worrying everyone, I think, is the impunity with which Azerbaijan continues to hold prisoners, detainees, soldiers, and some civilians, and treats them appallingly. And it's getting away with that, although it's breaking the uh, agreement in the ceasefire. When the ceasefire was uh, signed, it required both sides to return all prisoners. Right. Well, Armenia did, and Azerbaijan has not, and still has many. And I think one of the most brutal uh, aspects is in a number of cases, when they've captured a prisoner, they would take his phone and then they would carry out atrocities uh, and maybe even killing, and then video that on the phone and send it back to his family. And I was speaking to a lady in Armenia and she lost her husband, so I just dare not look at my phone. And those are appalling crimes against humanity. Yes, I'm, I'm once again just 
impressed with just how much you know and, and how detailed you know about what's been happening. It is definitely tragic. And uh, I'm, I'm, is it the, the fact that all of these bodies, all these agencies who are supposed to, uh, you know, who, who are supposed to really look at this and do something, especially the OSCE, uh, is it because of Azerbaijan's oil, do you think, and money and uh, all of that that's really tilting uh, the level, the powers here? Well, it's certainly a major factor with the UK government. Um, way back in the previous war in the 1990s, I brought back photographs of children shredded by cluster bombs. And I said this on the floor of the house, so I'm not saying anything that's not been known in public. And I took these to a very senior person in the Foreign Office, I don't see who, because it's an unofficial briefing. But I showed these photographs and I said, will the British government make representation of the government of Azerbaijan to stop dropping cluster bombs on civilians? It's against international law. The reply, no country has an interest in other countries, only interests. We have oil interests in Azerbaijan. Good morning. Well, I mean, I quoted that on the floor of the house without giving a name. And I said, I'm ashamed to be British. I'm not naive. I can understand commercial interest. I can understand strategic interest. But I don't think it's the long-term interest of any nation that those override completely concerned for human rights. I don't think the majority of British people would want oil at the price of cluster bombs on children, at least without saying something about it. And I think we're in exactly the same position as you were there in the early 1990s. Wow. I, uh, my radio show uh, is called The Blunt Post with Vic, and my publication is called The Blunt Post. It's good to, uh, it's good to know that you are very blunt, too. I just, I'm so, uh, I, I admire that so much, that you don't sort of uh, filter or sugarcoat anything. Um, well, you can't. It's too serious, and it's too, such terrible suffering. You can't minimize it. Yeah. <laughs> Why Armenia? You, you know, there are so many different uh, atrocities happening throughout the world. What has made you such a great, I don't even have a word for it. You know, I feel like you're the caretaker. You're the, I don't know, the guardian of Artsakh. Why Artsakh? Well, just to rewind the tape a moment, and I introduce myself, I always say I'm a nurse and a social scientist by intention, a baroness by astonishment. I wasn't into politics. As the first baroness I'd ever met, you wake up one morning and find a baroness looking at yourself at the bathroom mirror. It's quite a shock, but obviously it's a privilege because it means you speak in the House of Lords, the Upper House, as it's called, or the British Parliament. So I thought, well, how do I use this privilege? And the idea came very clearly. It's a wonderful place to be a voice for people whose voices are not heard. And so I've tried to use my role there. Um, I'm 84, so I've been there for a good many years, can't believe it. I was introduced in 83. So, um, but anyway, right. I tried to use, thank you, use that role. Um, and in the early days, I was getting behind the Iron Curtain in Poland, a lot of work in Poland, medical aid for the Poland Fund, and the Agalonian Trust taking things in and out, which academics and other people wanted, which they couldn't get in by any other means, but we never mixed the two. And then I got to work in Russia, where there was a desperate need for help for orphaned and abandoned children who were not given any care at all, uh, physical care, not hardly any. And when they reached the age of leaving an orphanage, uh, they had nothing. They had no, they were, many were labeled oligophrenics, little brain, and therefore they were denied an education beyond basic literacy. 
And so they couldn't do any job. And they were really the kind of slave labor of the Soviet Union, huge numbers. And then toward, well, as I was doing that, I got contacted by Yelena Bonasakharov, and she asked me if I would speak at a big conference on human rights that she was organizing in Moscow. And it was Rostropovich played the opening concert. I mean, it was high quality stuff. And then I was chairing one of the sessions and Zori Belayan, one of the great art circle leaders was there. And he described how the Azeris had started their operational ring, encirclement of villages and townships, and then bombardment and rounding up the civilians and doing nasty things to them and stealing all their properties and driving off their land. And he gave us the names of all, I think it was 14 at that time, that had suffered. I, I wouldn't stand by that 14 in court. That's a, a memory, but it was a figure in that area. And um, they all suffered this terrible operation ring and the helicopters would fly overhead and the black forces of Azerbaijan carried out atrocities. And, and yeah, I reported this to the full conference and I was asked to lead a delegation down to Armenia and um, Missouri Bellarm, and we got the evidence from all kinds of evidence. We went to Goris, where some of the people who'd had to flee, uh, were actually in Goris, and there's an elderly gentleman, he was just weeping, he said, I can see my home from here, I just want to go home, but of course he couldn't. And um, then we went up um, further north in order to cross the border into Azerbaijan, and so you could say we being both Armenia and Azerbaijan, which is important. And um, we did cross that border and a bit unofficially, but we, we related to the um, Azeri forces there. And um, we came back and reported all we'd found. And that really got a certain amount of interest, but also got my passion starting to grow. I then did go to Azerbaijan, to Baku, because you always need to hear both sides. And um, that's a story for another day, but it was, well, I'll tell it very quickly now. I wanted to visit Artsakh from Baku. I couldn't go in from um, Armenia then. And um, so I said to the president, I'd like to visit uh, Artsakh, please. And he said, well, you can't. It's you know, in Armenia. And I said, well, Armenia, let me cross over to Azerbaijan, my first visit. It's always important to see both points of view. Sure. So he said, well, okay, if Armenia will send a plane to Baku, then I will agree for you to go to Artsakh. And um, no, no, yes, and anyway, he never thought I would. They cut off all our telephones, naturally. But then I had with the Yelena Bonasakharov's son, who was very helpful, and um, we used public telephone lines to get in touch with his mother. And um, she got in touch with Zori Balawan. And they did send a plane, absolutely <laughs> full of Armenian soldiers, but they sent a plane. And it did give us a chance to go and visit the villages inside uh, Artsakh, uh, in, inside well, the bombed out enclaves. And it was so important. So I've been to both countries. And um, when we were in Stepanakert, uh, we were being hosted by the local head of the Communist Party. I think it was vice president of Azerbaijan. Um, his name will come back to me in a moment. And um, anyway, we, they were telling us all their side of things. And I got a message while we were sitting in the House of Parliament in the main square in Stepanakert and um, saying in the next building, there are hundreds of people who suffered from Azerbaijan and they want to tell you their stories. 
So I said, well, you know, I'd like to meet people in the next building. And they said, well, it's not possible. So I said, why is it not possible? So I got up and walked out <laughs> and uh, with colleagues. And um, the, the whole thing was surrounded by barbed wire, uh, as it is in war times and so on. So we just climbed through the barbed wire <laughs> and we got to the other building. And we did hear stories from the Armenians of what they'd suffered, how they been, you know, men had been beaten so they could never have children again, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Rape, I mean, the whole thing was just horrendous. But they wouldn't let us hear that if we hadn't walked through the barbed wire. But tragic, tragic situations. Yeah. And um, as I say, there was very little international help for Armenia and Artsakh in those days. Do you remember what year that was? It would have been probably 92, 93. I could check it up because um, John yeah. Eibner from CSI Switzerland, um, yeah. he came yeah. into Artsakh, read a book called Ethnic Cleansing in Progress, The War in Nagorno-Karabakh. And it's got a lot of the details in that. So I can check that out. It's yeah, probably yeah. 92, I should think. It makes sense, yeah. because the ceasefire Maybe. happened in 94. Yeah, it was either 91 or 92. It was fairly early on in my visits to that part of the world. In fact, because I felt I've been to Armenia once, I had to go to Azerbaijan next time. So it's probably 91. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox. Uh, where do we go from here? What, what should we do? What is not being done to resolve this issue? Because as you know, you know Artsakh is in this really volatile position where they have no leverage. Azerbaijan is cutting off their electricity and water and harassing them and shooting, shooting through the borders at Armenian positions and Armenian people. Um, what can be done? Sometimes I feel, I just got back from Armenia, as I said, and few people feel a little powerless right now. Well, I was in Armenia a few weeks ago. We went to Sunik, of course, which is where Azerbaijan is encroaching. And we went down to the, one of the main towns that's on focus of Azeri attention. Kapan, I think it's called Kapan. Um, right. Yeah, and we went down there, and then we walked quite a little way, walked to a village right on the border, uh, well, you know, what should have been a border, and um, Azerbaijan was already occupying you know, within a few hundred metres, and they were, I've got a photograph of myself with um, an old lady whose house had been actually attacked by Azerbaijan, she got five areas in her home which were damaged by a spinter of a bomb. Because she's living in Armenia proper and her home was attacked. And then we met quite a few of the uh, citizens who lived there and they described how uh, their lives are ruined because they lived for a time immemorial on the land with livestock and it's their way of life. Right. But Azerbaijan has been uh, stealing their livestock. If the livestock crossed over, then they would keep them. But sometimes they would come in get them and they'd had hardly any livestock left but also Azerbaijan would burn the pastures so there was no food for the livestock so they were very sadly uh, writing off livestock as a way of living for themselves and um, you know, this is destruction on, on a very very uh, unacceptable way yes it's it's tragic and um I, I didn't know that you were in Sunik. In fact, we probably missed each other by maybe a week. 
Um, I left uh, Armenia on October 25th. Um, yeah, I can send you a copy of our report. He gives photographs of Sunik and the people met in Sunik. No, that would that's that would be fantastic. I just saw that uh, the the front page of that newspaper you showed me, and I must have missed that. Um, yeah, Sunik. You know, now Azerbaijan is encroaching, as you said, on Armenia proper. Um, something that Russia said. They would get involved if that happens based on the treaty that the two nations have, but uh, we haven't seen any of that. And I think Armenia is immensely vulnerable. Yeah. And Azerbaijan and Turkey know it's very vulnerable. And unless the international community gets its act together to ensure that Azerbaijan does not get away with impunity, I'm afraid they will continue. And yes. it's not impossible that there might not be another Armenian genocide on the horizon if the international community just stands by and watches. Yeah, I, I, I think that that would make Turkey and Azerbaijan very happy if uh, the genocide resumes uh, and uh, they finally do the job that they wanted to do in 1915. I mean, Erdogan has been, uh, you know, hinting at that, not, not so much hinting, even talking about it, uh, it's a, it's a very sad situation, and I just wonder if, you know, what, what, what are the options? I feel like, what are the options for Armenia and Artsakh, and what are the options for those of us that live in other nations, diaspora, uh, and non-Armenians? What can we do that we're not doing? Well, just to rewind the tape for a moment, I mean, both Aliyev and Erdogan have been setting the scene for this. I'm sure you had video footage of the, uh, where they both talked in Baku and how they said, you know, Yerevan used to be part of Azerbaijan, Lake Savan used to be part of Azerbaijan, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, you know, nobody's challenging them in the, in the international arena, as far as I know. And they're just getting away with everything with impunity. And my fear is that if the impunity continues, they're just going, getting more and more um, with impunity. So my feeling is that we have to put pressure on governments who should be um, calling Azerbaijan to account. The, the war crimes are well documented. The evidence is there. Your film shows some of the evidence very powerfully. Yes. And the evidence of attempted uh, well, ethnic cleansing, genocide, whatever you like, but certainly of war, crimes, war crimes and crimes against humanity are very, very available, evidence is there, and powerful and incontrovertible. And the international community should be doing more about it. Um, I would hope that the big Armenian diaspora in the States might encourage the US uh, government to do a bit more. Canada, I think, is quite a good track record. Canada did, I think, immediately stop sending weapons to Azerbaijan. Um, but uh, so far, the world has looked the other way, or may have said the old platitude, but um, has not really done anything to call Azerbaijan to account. This is The Blunt Post with Vic on KPFK 90.7 FM. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox. Yeah, you're absolutely right. I, um, you know, we have a pretty, pretty sizable diaspora here in the U.S. and we do the, you know, I think the best that we can, we, we could all do more, I think. But I was speaking with um, 
uh, you know, a congressman about this. And he said, the way the U.S. looks at uh, Artsakh, Armenia is more of a sort of a broader regional issue. And it's kind of like a chess piece, which is, um, you know, I, I, that's really sad to see because um, it, it's, it's kind of both sidedism. You know, it's, it goes back to uh, nations doing what's best for their own self-interest. It goes back to uh, not acknowledging who is the oppressor and who's the oppressed. Uh, if you're going to look at it as a chess piece and see uh, what the power struggle is and, and do best accordingly to your self-interest, uh, uh, in this case being the U.S., it's a very... And as you said, Armenia is vulnerable because there's not a lot of leverage power. They, you know, Armenia doesn't have oil, doesn't have a lot of natural resources, whatever mines it has, it's lost to Azerbaijan um, and Russia, which was supposed to be an ally as has, uh, you know, is playing all three sides, you know, which is ultimately Russia's playing Russia's side. They're doing what's best for them. Uh, although I think just like, in, I think, they all, all these parties know the reality, whether they admit it or not, is a whole other issue. Um, I'm, I'm told that Russia is doing a good job on the peacekeeping side mm -hmm. in Artsakh. I think the, the people of Artsakh do appreciate that. I mean, it's their role, but I think they're not violating it. They're, they're doing it honorably, which is helpful in the short term. But it's where we go from here. And the other thing that I think is so outrageous and um, deserves to be called to account is the celebration of the victory in Baku, the Victory Park, you know, and the brutal, horrendous things and the corridor of um, the helmets of Armenian soldiers who've been killed. And um, just walking down that, there's a, a well-publicized photograph of walking down that corridor of helmets of dead Armenian soldiers and then the mannequins, which are made to look grotesque and often in very uncomfortable situations. And then I, the kids, as I'm told, are encouraged to go and beat them up and uh, show their hate. And this is, this is a hate crime and war crime. Yes, it's, it's outrageous. It's egregious. Just, just hearing you say it, it brings it all back. It, all, yeah. it just brings it all back. It's so... Um, it's so fresh, you know, for ever since September 27th of last year, I've lived this. I've, I've, my entire life has been this. I've watched the videos, I've seen the footage. It's, uh, it's just astounding, astounding that, uh, you know, um, one of the things that sort of amazes me is last year, uh, President Biden uh, fulfilled his campaign promise to recognize the Armenian genocide, something yeah. that the House and the Senate had done, and he did. But a week later, he and Secretary Blinken turned around and uh, lifted Section 907 and supplied $100 million worth of military equipment to Azerbaijan. It just, it just baffles me um, when I see uh, you know, and I'm a Democrat, I voted for <laughs> President yeah. Biden. But it just baffles me when politicians really say one thing from a podium, you know, and do just the complete opposite. Yeah. I mean, it's very challenging and very, very heartbreaking for the Armenian people because yeah. 
they, you know, someone who could have been a fair ally for them and did recognize their genocide uh, is now, as you say, saying arms to Azerbaijan and is making life more horrific for the Armenians, which yeah. is you know, so tragic. Yeah. Lady Cox, what questions should I have asked you that I haven't? What would you like to share? We've asked some good questions, enabling me to share a lot. But I would like to see more pressure, I think, from the diaspora. Um, I mean, we've got a small diaspora in the UK, and it's good, uh, but you've got a huge diaspora. Uh, raising issues and putting the evidence is now readily available, and you've got a lot of it yourself. It's brilliant. Um, you know, to the UN Security Council, to um, the key bodies, um, to get sanctions imposed on Azerbaijan. You've got the evidence of war crimes, the evidence of, um, you know, the deliberate attacks on civilian targets. Uh, they, I mean, when we, when we were in Otsak, when the war was just, you know, it was still on, it was coming to an end, but we witnessed the maternity hospital, which had been bombed, which is war crime. I think at the time they were still carrying out deliveries in the basement, but after that it was entirely ruined. Um, and we witnessed the um, attack on a, on a college, a school, I don't know which one it was, but perhaps most serious, uh, the deliberate attack on the electric power station. I've got photographs of that, um, which meant was that people hiding in basements and cellars, which is a horrible existence anyway, and wouldn't have light or heat. And uh, that was brutal. And um, the now I gather, um, it happened since I was there, uh, there have been um, attacks on water supply for people. That when we were in Armenia just a few weeks ago, uh, we met some of our friends from Artsakh, and they said that they, um, water was very much a problem. Um, one could only get it from getting up at three o'clock in the morning and get an hour's supply, and that was it. I don't know if it's still a problem, but it, and it would seem to be consistent with Azerbaijan's deliberate policies. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Wow, it's, uh, you know, I'm just, it's fascinating. You're like a library, a resource of information. <laughs> it's so detailed, so comprehensive. It's just astonishing. Um, it's, um, it's so uh, just refreshing. I think, um, you give hope to those people who are very close to being hopeless, who are who feel powerless, who feel forgotten, who feel um, that the world has sort of turned a blind eye. Um, and you know, you're just a beacon of hope, uh, and you're one of very few. In fact, well, you're one of very few, but no one comes to your level, and that's why this is so special to me. Because um, I can't fathom this documentary without you. Um, so I'm so grateful. I don't want to uh, uh, keep you any longer. Um, I'm, I'm just so grateful. I was bummed that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't fly to London to interview you in person. Um, but we meet one day, I hope, but at least the interview is the interview. I would love to. Next time I'm in, I'm in London, uh, I was there in 2017 last the next time I'm there, just to come up and say hello and bring you flowers would be an honor. Where is Armenian cognac, please? Oh, you got it. I'll bring you, I'll bring you the best cognacs for sure. I think it will last longer than the flowers, but given all my friends who've been to Armenian arts, they all love it. 
So by the time you share that, it'd be a treat. Yeah, it was the Prime Minister Churchill apparently liked uh, Armenian cognac. The only one he would drink, I'm told. Lady Cox, want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. I just don't know what to say that's going to really express how I feel. I, you know, it's just this documentary is elevated to unbelievable heights because of you. Well, check, check, do it again soon. Oh, Shannara, got it to you. <laughs> thank you very much. And uh, look forward to being in touch. Thank you. That was my interview with Baroness Carolyn Cox, which was truly a dream come true. It's always such an honor, privilege to interview someone that you've admired for so long. And she's definitely one of the top 10 people for me. I'm super grateful. Thank you so much, Lady Caroline, for your time, for your humanity, for all the work that you do. And I hope to speak with you again soon. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, without whom this show would not be possible, and KPFK, the station that brings you unfiltered and commercial-free news, opinion, and hopefully some inspiration. Thank you for joining me today on The Blunt Post with Vic. Tune in next Monday at 6 a.m. for another episode. For more information, please visit thebluntpost.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. Thank you. The Blunt Post with Vic.